0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time for a Vault episode. This one originally aired November 19th, 2019, and it was part one of our Devourer of Memories series. Uh, this one was a lot of fun. We talked about research into flatworms that at least for a while seemed to indicate that maybe you could gain some other organisms' memories through cannibalism. Uh, that might not have held up so well, but, uh, but it's a really fun story along the way.
1: Yeah, so today, if you are in the United States and you feel like you have the brain of a turkey after consuming the flesh of a turkey, then uh, this is the episode for you. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
0: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be embarking on a two-part episode about the nature and physical basis of memory. Uh, So in the past, we've explored the question, where is my mind? We did an episode about this, I think, a couple years ago. Like, it seems obvious enough that cognition takes place in the brain, but this hasn't always been taken for granted. And today we're going to look at a very strange narrative of 20th and some 20th. 21st century research that asks a similar question about memories. What are memories made of? Like, if you have a memory of, uh, I don't know, know, going down the street and seeing Hulk Hogan stomping on an ice cream sandwich... Is that stored exclusively within the brain? If so, how is it stored in the brain? And more importantly for today's episode, can I eat your body and gain that memory for myself? <laughs> yeah, this is,
1: uh, you know, uh, this is a, actually a really tremendous question, though of course it does touch on a number of mythical and fictional notions that we've touched on before over the years, such as uh, can a ghoul eat your brains and become you for a limited amount of time? Or can an immortal swordsman cut off another immortal's head and gain their vital power? Okay. Uh, Do, uh, you know, the living dead really eat brains because it makes the pain of being dead go away? Uh, Is there anything to Indo cannibalistic funeral rites, uh, you know, practiced by various cultures throughout history since ancient times? Uh, Or how about this? If Michael Caine loses a hand and receives a hand transplant from a murderer, does he become more likely to he himself murder?
0: I assume that must be based on a real movie, but whatever. Yeah, is, I uh,
1: uh, Oliver Oliver Stone directed
0: it. As a matter
1: of fact, yeah. what's it called? I think it's called The Hand. <laughs> okay. uh, but it, you know, Michael Caine's ended up. He plays like a comic book artist, I think. Uh, so that you know, that's the other side of it. Is he? Oh, he was he's like an hand illustrator. Art, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's early Stone. It's not political. It's all about. Uh, you know, people's hands coming off and being replaced by a hand that then has the will of a killer within it, which I think has been explored in in other horror properties as well. Uh-huh. Um, Sounds
0: like solid Michael Caine.
1: Yeah. And it also gets into an idea that came up in our recent episode on yoga, the idea of of, of memories being stored in one's body, which, of course, is a little more complicated. All this is, all, is more complicated when you consider the human situation. Uh, but a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this episode is not dealing – Directly with 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 human cognition and human memories, right. but what we can observe in simpler, but also very important and informative organisms.
0: Yes, uh, though that doesn't mean that people haven't tried to extrapolate all kinds of things about uh, about human memory mm. from this research, and, and that'll be part of the story too. This is going to be a mostly historical pair of episodes, looking at controversial past research and linking it to more recent studies, uh, and it's also going to be in two parts, as I said. So I'd say it's, it's important not to draw your conclusions until you've heard the whole thing. A significant part of what we're talking about today is going to be research that looked promising at one time, but is widely regarded as as being uh, on the wrong track today. Exactly. But still, certainly there's a lot to learn by looking at these past cases. Absolutely. Uh, So the main human figure we're going to be looking at in the story today was an American psychologist named Dr. James V. McConnell, who lived 1925 to 1990. Uh, And I wanted to start off by mentioning several sources about McConnell's life and career that we'll be referring to in uh, these episodes. One was an article about McConnell by the Michigan State University psychologist Mark Rilling that appeared in American Psychologist in 1996 uh, called The Mystery of the Vanished Citations. uh, And that title refers to a period where McConnell was doing a lot of very influential research. But today you don't see the citations of this research mentioned very much. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of exploring why that is. Uh, another article, it was a great article called Memory in the Flesh in the Verge by Ariel Duhame Ross, and also a couple of pieces uh, in like 2010 and 2013 uh, for the Journal of the American Psychological Association by a sociology professor named Larry Stern. That Verge article, by the way, is from 2015, and, yeah. uh, and it's quite a good read. Yes, it is. So James McConnell was born in uh, Okmulgee, Oklahoma. I hope I'm saying that right. Okmulgee or Okmulgee. Yeah. That sounds Oklahoma enough, I think. Okay. Uh, In 1925, he spent almost all of his professional career on faculty at the University of Michigan, beginning in 1956 after he got his PhD from the University of Texas and lasting until his retirement in 1988. And from the 60s through the 80s, he also served as a research psychologist at the Mental Health Research Institute of the University. So McConnell overall was a very controversial figure in American psychology for multiple reasons that we will explore throughout these episodes, widely known as innovative, enthusiastic, humorous, but also perhaps as reckless, sometimes unserious and undisciplined. One interesting fact about him that'll, I think, become more relevant as we go on is that early on, before his academic career, he did some work in radio and television as a DJ and a scriptwriter before going into psychology, and of course, this would prove valuable in a career as a public science communicator and something of a celebrity scientist. Now, apart from the research that we're going to be looking at today, I think McConnell was probably best known for founding a strange magazine called the Worm Runner's Digest. Hmm. Uh, I, I think one major problem many psychologists had with James McConnell during his life Uh, was typified by the spirit of this journal, which published real reports of real scientific research. In some ways, it was kind of a clearinghouse for reports of research that wasn't yet in the it wasn't yet ready to be submitted to peer-reviewed journals so kind of scientists would submit uh, you know worm training reports and things like that to this as, as a preliminary measure but then it would publish that real research uh, and, and real manuals for replication right alongside bizarre jokes and poems and cartoons and hoaxes and satirical articles hmm. so for a few article titles by Larry Stern. One is the effects of physical torture on the learning and retention of nonsense syllables. Hmm. Uh, one is called uh, operant conditioning in the domestic darning needle, spina farica. Hmm. So a lot of like weird psychology in-jokes, sort of jokes about the field, uh, psychologists trying to write parodies of their own research and the and the problems they encountered within their subfields. Okay, okay. So a very, very specific audience in mind then. Yes, uh, Larry Stern also writes that there uh, were spoofs of Freudian theory, including, quote, some comments on the addition to the theory of psychosexual development by Sigmund Fraud, which introduced the nasal stage occurring between the anal and phallic stages, uh, in which the libido, quote, is localized primarily in the mucus linings of the nose, (laughs) which I guess is a strange reminder that, uh, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, I think a lot of psychology journals would still be dealing with a pretty significant contingent of Freudian-trained psychoanalysts. But, and I figured this would be of special interest to you, Robert, McConnell actually was also a science fiction writer and a charter member of the Science Fiction Writers of America, which, uh, again, I would say probably didn't help his professional reputation. Yes, perhaps not. Uh, So from what I could find, his sci-fi stories also often seem to be humorous and aimed at parody of the fields that he worked in. For example, Rilling writes about McConnell's uh, one of McConnell's stories called Learning Theory, published in 1965, and in this story, quote, McConnell is the protagonist who is abducted during the preparation of a lecture on learning theory into an interstellar lab ship to become a subject confined to a series of chambers that resembled the Skinner Box, Hmm. T-Maze, and Lashley Jumping Stand, and I had to look up that last one, but the Lashley jumping stand was an apparatus for the study of operant conditioning, and it gave a rat an option to jump over a gap to two different visual stimuli. One would offer a reward, and one would cause the rat to fall into a net below. Okay, so another just another tool that was used in behavioral studies, right? So he's in, in this story. He's writing about himself being put into the studies that people were doing on rats in the fifties. And I guess the 60s, too. Uh, But picking up with Rilling's description of the story, quote, after first behaving according to the predictions of learning theory, McConnell realizes that he will be returned to Ann Arbor if he misbehaves by violating the predictions of his captor's theory of learning. McConnell was an iconoclast, and his story is a spoof on learning theory in 1960. Hmm. So I think the idea is – he's poking fun at the the sort of uh, the the reign of conventional wisdom by saying that uh, if he were a subject in alien psychological research if he didn't confirm their pre-existing theories they'd basically throw him out and say he wasn't a valid research subject. Huh, interesting. According to an obituary I found by some University of Michigan colleagues, uh, McConnell was also a cultivator of orchids as well as a lover of computers and poker and known by many students for "quote personal zest to joy in teaching, intellectual animation, infectious enthusiasm, and individualized attention that he brought to his classes." Uh, and Rilling points out that while much of his cannibalistic memory transfer work that we're going to be focusing on was later considered wrong and misguided, McConnell was actually a really important pioneer in research into invertebrate learning and memory and that scientists today should be able to learn from both his successes and his failures. Now, I want to make an admission that I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong in one of these episodes because I keep accidentally calling James McConnell Jerry O'Connell, <laughs> who was not a psychologist. He was the guy in Scream 2, and G- he played the football player in Jerry Maguire. Do you oh, remember this? Oh, no, no. I, I actually haven't seen Jerry Maguire. Um, <laughs> you, but you've got some VHS tapes. I do. I have some
1: VHS tapes because I'm I'm saving them. I have to contribute them to the pyramid uh, that is being built in the desert because we do have to return all the Jerry's home. Uh-huh. uh but, Yes, I actually have not watched it.
0: Well, you know, he he was like a a hunky dude in the 90s. (laughs) Uh, But no, different guy, not the actor Jerry O'Connell, James McConnell. So if I say Jerry O'Connell, you got to reach across the table and slap me. Will you you keep this pledge?
1: Um, I I don't know if I feel like getting up to slap you, but I will try and jump in. Um, So Dr. McConnell explored some pretty radical ideas during his career. Uh, And, you know, one of them will be the primary focus for these episodes. But he also later wrote, about the potential of using behavioral modification on criminals to enable their reentry into society, yeah, um, and he thought that this might be used to eliminate crime and mental illness altogether.
0: There was a lot of enthusiasm in the mid-century among the behaviorist school of psychology for this kind of like society revolutionizing potential of behavior modification, right? And we have to go
1: back to some of these uh, character attributes that we've touched on already. That he was when he was excited about an idea, he was very excited. About about it and yeah. infectious with his excitement, and he was uh, something of a, of, a, of a public figure and yeah. would engage as kind of a
0: celebrity scientist. He, he could engage with science on a showbiz level, mm-hmm. not just on a uh, research level, and in fact, often maybe did so to the detriment of, of public expectations. He—, he uh, was accused by some colleagues of over-hyping and over-interpreting and over-speculating from what research existed. So it's thought that th- this
1: is the reason, that it, and it's particularly some of these um, ideas that he was pushing, and this enthusiasm he was pushing regarding behavioralism, that this is what attracted the attention of a man by the name of Ted Kaczynski, yeah. uh, which most people probably— recognize that name. If not, you might know him by his moniker, the Unabomber.
0: We were talking about this before we came in that, like, I bet a lot of younger listeners out there don't even remember the Unabomber. I remember from when I was very young.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also easy to only remember, you know, a few pictures here and there. I remember that police sketch and remember like a courtroom picture where, you know, Kaczynski looks, you know, completely unhinged, that sort of thing.
0: But yeah, McConnell was one of his
1: targets. Kaczynski mailed his 10th bomb to Dr. McConnell in an assassination attempt. Attempt and this was in 1985, um, and uh, at that time he was working with a graduate student assistant uh, named I believe what is Nicholas uh, Suino. Yeah. And so they're working together. They opened the package and triggered the explosion. Now, thankfully, both individuals survived with only, only minor injuries and mild hearing loss, as well as what sounds like some level of PTSD based on the experience, which I think is quite understandable. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, the, the, just a refresher on the Unabomber uh, for anyone who uh, doesn't know or is a little foggy, uh, Ted Kaczynski, born in 1942, was a, was a former mathematics professor and mathematician who took to acts of murder and domestic terrorism to advance his manifesto, which was titled Industrial Society and Its Future, in which he heavily criticizes post-industrial revolution society, and uh, he also criticized what he referred to as leftist psychology.
0: Yeah, he's sometimes I mean, he can be kind of hard to pin down in terms of his ideology because he doesn't fit with a lot of the standard... Ideological kind of groupings you see with mass murderers and terrorists that are motivated by ideology. He was more of a kind of idiosyncratic lone wolf terrorist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he's sometimes referred to as like an anarchist primitivist. He, he wanted people to return to nature and reject modern technology and science. Right, which I mean, there there are versions
1: of that that, of course, that are that many people listening to the show might agree with, uh,
0: and, and but want, they wouldn't resort to murder, exactly.
1: And I mean, that's that's the the big thing to, to drive home here. You know, he yeah he argued for this nature centric uh, anarchism, and uh, in his bombings, he targeted individuals involved in modern, te- mostly individuals moder- involved in modern technological advances, and uh, well, that's why McConnell's work is sometimes hard to figure out. Like why this attracted the attention of Kaczynski, because it doesn't quite seem to fit the profile at first glance.
0: Yeah, the article I was reading by Mark Rilling identifies uh, McConnell's public communication on TV and in other media about behavior modification. use. uh uh, you know, in use in criminal justice and, and uh, uh, human behavior reform at the large scale as the likely culprit in attracting Kaczynski's ire. Yeah,
1: because Kaczynski did criticize modification of the human condition, especially behavioral mod- modification, which McConnell had become an outspoken uh, proponent of in the media. And K- Kaczynski saw him as an advocate of so- society's attempts to change humans to fit the system rather than the reverse. Yeah. Between uh, 1978 and 1995, Ted Kaczynski killed three people and injured 23. Uh, he was the the, the, the target of, uh, of an intense um, uh, search uh, for his identity. But finally, he was arrested in 1996 and remains in prison serving a life term uh, as of this recording.
0: Yeah, and fortunately, both uh, McConnell and, and the student uh, Suino survived the attack. Mm-hmm. And so M- McConnell lived uh, several years after that. He, he passed away in 1990.
1: So this is just something of a just a bizarre, um, you know, aspect of the overall story, and just a certainly a historically noteworthy uh, part of McConnell's biography uh, that he just ends up, you know, wandering uh, into the path of uh, of this individual and becomes part of the Kaczynski story as well. Yeah,
0: but that's not the main part of his life we're going to be focusing on uh, in these episodes. We're going to be looking more at his research on memory and specifically memory research with uh, a group of flatworms known as planaria. So should we take a quick break and then come back to talk about planarians?
1: Yes, let's go ahead and cut the episode right here. All right, we're back.
0: So before we look at the experiments of James McConnell and colleagues, we should meet a major character in this scientific narrative, which is a type of flatworm called Planaria. Right. Now, for starters, planaria, there is a, a genus planaria, uh,
1: but uh, but it, but it's not, what we're talking about here is not just in, uh, organisms within that genus.
0: Yeah, it can be a little confusing because there are multiple things called planaria. Planaria is also used to refer to a larger family of related flatworms, and most of the worms that are called planarians are outside the genus of planaria uh, in classes, uh, in the class tubularia or the family uh, planaridae. So we're, we're gonna going to be talking about this broader class of planarians yeah you'll you'll find them living in both fresh and salt water
1: uh in the water but also on land terrestrial planaria are found in the soil or or damp areas or humid places some are even parasitic but most feed on protozoans tiny snails and worms and they mostly feed at night mostly (laughs) (laughs) They're uh, they're soft. They tend to be soft leaf leaf shaped creatures that range from three to fifteen millimeters, uh, but they can reach longer lengths. Uh, they have. Two eyes, and those two eyes uh, are are often quite notable because uh, they look like googly eyes. Yeah.
0: You've probably seen these before in actual photos of these worms zoomed in. They're (laughs) cross-eyed.
1: Some some of them have tentacles. They have a, a ventral mouth opening and no body cavity. They may swim via undulations or crawl like a slug they are also simultaneous hermaphrodites, having both sexes within a single individual. Yet some utilize sexual reproductions and, and some utilize asexual reproduction. And of course, they're legendary for their regenerative powers.
0: Yes, and it's these regenerative powers that are going to play a central role in a lot of this research. Uh, and, it, and it may have played a role in your individual research and even science education growing up. Oh, sure. Yeah, maybe. I mean, so... I mean, you could not have a Planarian Highlander situation. You would have a real problem with trying to keep a Planarian decapitated.
1: That's right. Uh, and, And to really drive this home, let's talk about just how amazing the regenerative powers are. Basically, they can be cut in half, and each half will form into a fully formed individual. In fact, it's been estimated that a mere one ninth of the organism can, once removed, regenerate into a fully formed individual. So we're talking total
0: sorcerer's apprentice territory <laughs> here, and that's really not an overstatement. Uh-huh, yeah. It would be like, you know, if you could chop my finger off and it would grow a whole new me. Yeah,
1: really. And that's, I mean, that's amazing because we've we've talked on the show before a lot about the regenerative powers of, of various vertebrate organisms, for example, you know, and it's 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 impressive that a lizard can jettison its tail and mostly regrow that tail, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. Many of the healing abilities of even the human body are pretty... Substantial when you really set back and and consider them, yeah. but this is this is something far beyond most of those examples, yeah,
0: I would say this goes even beyond uh, the impressive examples we see in like uh, amphibians like salamanders, yeah, you can even cut their head in
1: half, kind of like you started to cut them in half with a sword and uh, then you got bored like around the neck uh you can you can you can cut their head in half uh, and then just stop, and then they'll, de- they'll develop two heads and live that way in some cases. Uh, they ha- there have been some very interesting experiments in how they regenerate in microgravity as well. For instance, normally a two-headed uh, planaria is a rare occurrence in nature, but in one experiment, space-exposed worms were far more likely to develop a second head to the tune of one in 15 worms, uh, and amputating this worm would then result in more two-headed worms. Whoa. Whoa. And this is this is just one area where you know their their further study can help us understand their biology, uh, and uh, and also help us better understand you know, the effects of microgravity on an organism. But of course, their regenerative powers in general continue to garner a great deal of research attention.
0: Yeah, I mean the medical uh, applications of regenerative biology itself are very important. Yeah. Worth noting that uh, Darwin actually
1: observed these amazing creatures as well uh, and their amazing ability. Uh, I I will read a quick quote here from uh, Charles Darwin. All right. This is from uh, Journal of Researches into the Natural History and Geology of the Countries Visited During the Voyage of HMS Beagle Around the World. Quote, having cut one of them transversely into two nearly equal parts in the course of a fortnight, both had the shape of perfect animals. I had, however, so divided the body that one of the halves contained both the inferior orifices and the other, in consequence, none. In the course of 25 days from the operation, the more perfect half could not have been distinguished from any other specimen." And there's more that you know he uh, obviously, but that's just a taste of his uh, fascination with uh, the organism itself.
0: Sitting in the beagle, cutting up worms. Yeah,
1: and and they've continued to fascinate researchers as well. Uh, you know, for a number of, of reasons, um, as pointed out by uh, Doctor um, Oni R. Pagan. Uh, author of The First Brain. Uh, He pointed this out in a 2014 interview with Futurism. Uh, There are other organisms with this kind of regenerative ability, but very few uh, are quite as excellent at it as the planarian. And they also have a relatively complex nervous system, which contributes to their appeal, Uh, especially when you get into areas where you're talking about what can we learn from uh, from a planarian that we can then apply potentially in the future uh, to human physiology. Now, just a few other quick uh, fascinating facts uh, about them. At least one variety produces produces the deadly tetrodotoxin. Um, In general, their mouths emerge from a uh, proboscis located halfway down their body. That's cool. And uh, those googly eyes, sometimes uh, described as cross eyes, apparently nobody's exactly sure why that is the case.
0: I will say the googly eyes often look like an illustration. They present a problem with the presentation of mm-hmm. these planarians that display the, the googly eyes because you can show a photo of them and it looks like somebody drew it. It doesn't look like a real world organism. It always, even to this
1: day, it makes me think of spy versus spy and mad magazine. They look like the the two spies, the black uh, spy and the white spy from uh-huh. that cartoon. Yep. So that's the, the subject in a nutshell. Uh, But I imagine we should start turning our attention
0: to some of the experiments. Right. So I would say the story begins with the psychological technique of classical conditioning. So— The most common example of classical conditioning is Pavlov's dogs, right? Uh, The Russian physiologist uh, Ivan Pavlov, who lived 1849 to 1936, was famously studying the process of digestion in dogs when he noticed that not only did the dogs begin to drool in the presence of food, that that would make sense, right? You put Mm -hmm. some food in front of a dog, the digestion process begins with the mental stimulation of the sight of food, right? Uh, you, You start producing saliva or drool in order to help you eat. It actually went beyond that. Pavlov observed that the dogs would start to drool as soon as they saw the lab assistant who usually fed them. Mm. Uh, So there's a physiological justification for producing extra saliva when an animal sees food, uh, the animal's body is preparing to eat. But Pavlov's insight was realizing that through repeated training, you could separate the stimulus and the response through one or more layers of abstraction. So, of course, the lab assistant isn't food but the dog comes to learn through repeated instances that every time it sees the assistant, it's about to get food and thus the body prepares itself to eat and digest. And this was later done with all kinds of different things with auditory cues such as a bell or a metronome. The dog hears the sound, it knows the food is coming and the body responds.
1: And I don't know about you, but like this is something that helps define my relationship with my pet. Like, uh-huh. I think about this all the time when observing my cat's relationship with our um, you know,
0: household environment. Absolutely. I think about my dog's relationship with any stimulus such as sound or visual cues that may signal a walk is about to take place mm. so like the picking up of the keys, the putting on of the coat, the putting on of the shoes all these different things are like start to trigger this powerful excitement reaction in the dog even though none of them are, are opening the door, leashing up, going out for a walk right? right?
1: none of them are in and of themselves the desired reward but there are various bits of stimuli Associated
0: with uh, that eventual reward, of course. So yeah, we are constantly, even accidentally, classically conditioning our pets. Uh, whenever something that they're interested in, whether positively or negatively, is about to happen, if it happens repeatedly, you're probably training them, whether you want to be or not. Right.
1: A can is open, might be food, says the cat. Yeah. Um, the rattle of foil, walking into the kitchen, um, <laughs> etc.
0: Yeah. Uh, and this is widely acknowledged as one of the most most useful discoveries in the history of experimental psychology. Of course, it works with both positive and negative stimuli. You can also, for example, administer a mildly painful shock every time somebody hears the Batman theme, and after enough repetition, the person or the animal is probably going to freeze or wince when they hear the music, even if no shock is administered. A
1: callback to our recent episode of Invention, our other podcast about the history, the techno history of inventions. We did one on the turn spit dog. Mm -hmm. If you're not aware, there was a time... In the history, especially in Britain, where small dogs turned little wheels to keep the uh, spit of meat turning by the fire. And one of the problems with using dogs uh, for this particular uh, bit of work is that they are smart and they pick up on these clues. So you, uh, they might pick up on the, these little signs that, uh, that in- inform them that uh, some meat is going to be skewered, that their, their roast is going to be had for dinner, or
0: maybe just a big dinner is going to take place and then the dog will run off and hide. Exactly. What they should have found to turn those spits was like a large invertebrate that was not very good at learning through classical conditioning – uh, oh, and just to keep things clear, because this is something that I used to confuse myself, uh, what's the difference between these two terms, classical conditioning and operant conditioning? You've probably heard both of them. Uh, they're similar. They're both based on learning associations between two things, but the difference is classical conditioning pairs two external stimuli. For example, I show you a picture of Sean Connery, and I give you an electric shock. So every time, you know, if you do that enough, it, when you see the picture of Sean Connery, you You'll wince or freeze or or react as if you're going to get a shock even if you don't. Meanwhile, operant conditioning uh, associates a reward or a punishment with a behavior supplied by the subject. So for example, if you jump three times, you get a bag of candy corn. Hmm. Okay. Now, we know perfectly well that these types of conditioning, classical conditioning, operant conditioning, work with a number of more complex life forms like rats, like dogs, like humans. But there was an interesting question that came up in the 20th century, which was, did it work for less complex life forms like, say, worms? All right.
1: On that note, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back. All right. We're back.
0: All right, so we've been discussing uh, classical conditioning, be- behavioral conditioning, and uh, the fact that this we we know this works in more complex life forms like mammals, rats, dogs, humans. But does it work in less complex life forms like worms and other invertebrates? In the 1950s, the answer to this question was pretty well understood, and that answer was no. Invertebrates could not learn the way that rats and monkeys and other mammals could. Mark Rilling makes this point at length in his article, writing that the widely held view, especially among zoologists and psychologists who were not experts directly in animal behavior, was that invertebrates had no capacity for internal memory states, and the only thing that they could could do that would even approximate learning might come from temporary changes in body tissue. Uh, Rilling quotes a leading textbook of comparative psychology at the time. I think it's from the 1930s uh, on a question of whether invertebrates can learn associations through conditioning. And the passage reads, experience may temporarily alter the form of behavior by inducing local tissue change, but such changes are wiped out by subsequent events and have no permanent altering effect. Uh, It was also the opinion of a contemporary researcher in in the 1950s, I think, named Donald Jensen, quote, that no invertebrate, no matter how complex, is capable of showing true associative learning. So that's the consensus. Invertebrates can't learn. Uh, As for this distinction they're making about true learning versus uh, tissue change – I think the distinction here is that like if a worm or an insect could be conditioned to go left rather than right in a maze, Mm -hmm. it might only be because, for example, the conditioning process had made the legs or the wings or something on one side of the body stronger. Uh, the, The bottom line was that animals without backbones cannot truly learn the same way animals like us can. You couldn't have a Pavlov's worm or a Pavlov's crab. Though the authors of the textbook quoted by Rilling make exactly one exception, they admit that this rule might not apply to planaria. Hmm. But of course McConnell, as usual, was sort of dispositionally opposed to the conventional wisdom. He was something of an iconoclast and he did not accept the idea in the 1950s that invertebrates could not learn. He wanted to find out if worms could be trained. Could he become a worm tamer? (laughs) So here we move on into the first stage of uh, this research history, the worm conditioning. So in 1953, McConnell was in graduate studies at the University of Texas. And uh, in this year and some of the following years, he he collaborated with another researcher named Robert Thompson to demonstrate that planarians could be classically conditioned. And the basic setup here involved learning of responses to light, light stimuli. Again, most of them are going to be nocturnal. Uh, so,
1: light is going to play an important role in their behavior.
0: Yeah, and certainly. Yeah, through their you know day-night cycles and stuff like that. So they can detect light. They have the ability to to tell when a light is being flashed. So planaria usually live, uh, at least the planaria they were working with, usually live in aquatic environments, and they move from one place to another by gliding across the bottom surface of a pool, uh, usually along slime trails that they deposit as they move. So McConnell and Thompson put together a test with a footlong pool of water in which they would deposit a planarian, and then the worm could glide from one end of the pool to the other. Then for the conditioning groups, McConnell and Thompson would train the worms by flashing a light above the water paired with an electric shock applied to the whole pool, to the water. And the conditioned responses the researchers were looking for in response to the light after training were contraction of the worm's body and turning of the the direction – and when the behavior of these trained planaria was compared with control groups, they found that while the planarian learning effect was not extremely strong, it was undeniably present. The conditioned worms showed an increase in contraction in response to the light. from from about 2% in the first 50 trials to about 10% in the last 50 trials. And turns uh, started at a rate of about 25% in response to light, but increased throughout the the test period to 35% after conditioning. Hmm. So as you can see, the planarian probably does not learn at nearly the efficiency of a mammal, like a rat or a dog or an orangutan. But these nevertheless are significant changes. So however weak, some learning was clearly taking place and as a, as a uh, modern note, just to be clear, the established wisdom about invertebrates being unable to learn through association was pretty much completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And planaria were not the only exception. I, I was looking at one paper by Hawkins and Byrne from 2015, published in uh, Cold Springs Harbor Perspect- uh, Perspectives in Biology, called uh, Associative Learning in Invertebrates. And they say that rudimentary forms of associative learning are found basically throughout the animal kingdom, uh, one commonly studied example used in invertebrate learning and memory research is the california sea hare, or aplasia californica i almost said aplasia californication yeah uh, californica that's a good one. <laughs> so it's a huge sea slug mm. i was looking this up it could barely be up to 75 centimeters long and weigh up to about seven kilograms or 15 pounds that's a that's a real mother of a sea slug can you imagine trying to pick up a 15-pound sea slug? No, no. Uh, th- I mean, one scarcely imagines it coming out of the,
1: the water, right? But uh, <laughs> I-, I can't help – just because we're talking about something that is a like sea hair. Uh, I, I always think of them behaving in rabbit-like uh, behavior, you know, or uh, even delivering Easter eggs.
0: Well, one also thinks about the sea monster that was popular on medieval and renaissance maps, the sea hare. I, oh, I, I yeah. believe I talked about uh, Chet Van Duzer with the, mm-hmm. sea, uh, the sea hare. Oh, yes. Or I talked with Chet Van Duzer about the sea hare.
1: Yeah, that's one of the, the fun things about sea monsters is that we have all these things that are sort of named, have the same name, like a sea hare, a sea lion, et cetera. But uh, in the history of sea monsters, pretty much every creature that was known to reside on the surface had a, a double in the deep.
0: Right. The The medi- medieval and renaissance map sea hair has nothing to do with this sea hair. Mm-hmm. It was not a slug. It had fuzzy bunny ears. <laughs> and you could have a velveteen sea hair, and it would be very sad. Uh, but yeah, so this sea hare is a giant sea slug, and uh, experiments show that it can learn associations. Uh, for example, a conditioned retraction of the gill and siphon organs that's strengthened by noxious stimuli like electric shocks to the tail. So while learning responses are are going to vary according to a creature's neuroanatomy. There appears to be no general rule against invertebrate learning.
1: Okay, that's good to know heading forward so it's not just this idea that that like all the eggs are in this one basket uh, it's like for invertebrate learning.
0: Only the planarians can yeah. learn. No, that is not the case. Uh, we, we got uh, some smart sea hairs, relatively smart. But again, to emphasize, this was the opposite of the conventional wisdom leading into the 1950s. Uh, and to some degree, even after research demonstrating that there was invertebrate learning, like consensus among experts at the time resisted the idea of true invertebrate learning, even after some published uh, studies. One example by rilling Concerns a response after McConnell and colleagues uh, seemed to indicate that the condition learning they could elicit in planaria had a sustained effect. Uh, that the memory associations lasted not just for hours, not just for days, but literally for, for months at a time. I think they said up to four months. Mm-hmm. In response to this, uh, a renowned zoologist specializing in invertebrates named Libby Hyman said apparently said multiple times, no, that just can't be, and argued that maybe a planarian could remember something for like like 5 minutes or so but the memory retention for weeks or months was just unthinkable but we already see some things at work here in uh, in McConnell's story. So Rilling points out that while these results did bear out, and uh, he thinks did generally demonstrate planarian learning and, uh, and showed something that is real and true, you could already see some of McConnell's methodological shortcomings at work. For example, he and Thompson did not use any kind of automatic measuring of the flatworm responses, but instead used the more traditional method of quote naturalistic observation. Uh, which I think means that they just watch to see what happened. Mm-hmm. You, you can probably guess why psychologists today try to find ways not to rely on experimenters just eyeballing it when making a judgment about what happened. Uh, you're, you're way more subject to experimenter bias this way. You want to, if possible, come up with an automatic method.
1: Right, because, I mean, ironically, what you're dealing with uh, when you're just dealing with observations is you are, of course, dealing with memory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if it, you are know, certainly if you're making notes about what you're seeing as you're seeing it, you're still having to rely then on your memory of the observation far better and, and you know, far more reliable to be able to point to, say, measurements. Yeah,
0: Yeah, done by a machine or Mm -hmm. something, have some kind of method that's not just your subjective judgment of what you just saw.
1: Right, being able to say, this organism moved, uh, you know, however far to the left in this experiment, and then in a second experiment, the same thing definitely occurred.
0: Yes, Uh, and and I want to be clear that, like, this doesn't uh, – experimenter bias doesn't have to result from experimenters trying to trick anyone or being oh, – yeah. uh, uh, trying to commit conscious fraud for their results. So they can be doing their honest best to try to represent things accurately, but still you you know, sub, uh, observation is somewhat subjective. You're going to honestly believe you saw something differently than somebody else did. Our, you know, our observations and our memories are not perfect and they're highly influenced by what we want to see or expect to see. Absolutely. Okay. Also, Rilling points out that McConnell and Thompson's graduate advisor here was a, a comparative psychologist named M.E. Bitterman, uh, who was critical of both students for not being careful enough, for example, not including a control group that were exposed to both shocks and light flashes, but unpaired from each other to more firmly establish a causal link for the uh, for the conditioning process itself. But what if they had gotten both flashes and shocks and they just weren't linked to the, the same way they were in the. In in the test group, uh, and they apparently didn't do that. And uh, so Rilling seems to see this as characteristic of McConnell's career as a whole. Uh, To quote from him uh, in a summary passage, quote, McConnell, an innovator, raced from one exciting phenomenon to the next without comprehensive experimental analysis or adequate controls. McConnell's controls were often developed as a response to his critics. McConnell's students and other scientists were left to the task of cleaning up after McConnell by adding the control groups that he omitted. And I think it's easy to see how this kind of thing can be at, at the same time. Very uh, winning and exciting, especially to maybe the general public and you know publications writing about his exciting and strange and counterintuitive new research, but also really irritating to peers in the field if you're vaulting from one flashy, controversial, exciting discovery to another without taking the time to slow down and be sure you're on firm ground after each stop right because the ideal process is if the study comes out and there's some sort of
1: problem with it then uh, then you know, the others in the field. Should chime in. There's a sort of amount of course correction that Mm. takes place. You go back to the drawing board, try to figure out how you went wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Maybe take a complete step or two backwards. You Mm. don't just keep going along this line because you know that there is gold on the other end.
0: But at the same time, I mean, you can totally understand the temptation to do it that way. It sounds so much more exciting than trying to buckle down and be super sure and super rigorous about what you think you already proved. Well, in this we get into something we, we've discussed on the show before about
1: just the, the nature of scientific inquiry. Like mm. it's one of these things that, in some ways, it is very much like how the human mind works and how humans have always solved problems. Uh, you can find, uh, you know, examples of what is essentially scientific inquiry, uh, certainly in. in, in been prehistoric peoples. But at the same time, there are aspects of scientific inquiry that defy uh, what it is to be a human problem solver, uh, that, that, that perfect the method in ways that don't make sense just within the confines of a, you know, a you know,
0: minute-to-minute human experience. Exactly. Trial and error comes naturally, but we're way too prone to rely on heuristics mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to use our sort of standard day-to-day trial and error judgment for real scientific investigation because usually we only need one or two examples of something going right for us to derive a rule from it. And one or two examples is not, you know, that's still an anecdote scientifically.
1: Uh, Here's an example from uh, my my life as a a parent. Um, My son at an early age was enthralled by claw machines. you found Uh like pizza parlors and um, and whatnot. And so the first time I let him try it, I said, okay, here's a quarter. You can try it, uh, and I was thinking, oh, he'll, he'll learn a good lesson. You know, he won't pick anything up with the claw, and I'll see that this is a tricky machine made exclusively to take his money by tempting him with the idea that he'll win a cheap prize, uh-huh. and then he wins a cheap prize the first time. Oh, no. Right, so I, I instantly set the the, the, the wrong uh, lesson, and then there was another case, like, shortly thereafter, or maybe it was a little while later, but uh, I you know, he had some credits at a uh, some sort of parlor as part of a, ch- a children's birthday party, did it again, won a prize, and so now it's ruined. Like two, the, the two prizes makes a rule that claw machines are where you get cheap toys, and the trickery is, uh, you know, somewhat lost on him at this at, at this point,
0: anyway. Oh no, I mean that kind of learning. I've actually wondered before if that could feature into, and maybe you know, as far as we know, it already does. But could in the future feature into a a more insidious type of slot machine? Mm-hmm. that's a more perfect gambling addiction creator and money extractor and what it how it would simply work is it's got a camera on there with facial recognition and it can recognize if you've played a slot machine in this casino before and if you haven't it's and it's your first time it gives you a small payout on your first go
1: yeah give you that that that, that first time user beginner luck uh, but also give you false expectations about what playing a slot machine is all about exactly Boy. i
0: hope i didn't just <laughs> give ideas to some uh, really insidious designer there. Right. Because to be sure, to be clear,
1: and, and we certainly did a couple of episodes on slot machines in the past, a slot machine's purpose is to take your money. And the slot machine playing experience is the loss of money.
0: Yeah. Uh, the slot machine is not designed to help you win big. If you want to play them, you should understand that you are paying for an entertaining experience. And that's the best case scenario. All right. We, we got
1: a little off topic there, but it's just as well because we've kind of hit our time limit for this part of the inquiry. We're going to be back in the next episode to continue this discussion of, uh, planarians, uh, to what extent can they, um, uh, can they learn, but also we're going to get into this other area about the absorption of another worm's memory. Uh, is it possible, uh, through cannibalism, through cannibalism? Uh, and then how does McConnell get into trouble, uh, based on his reported findings? And then where do we go from here in the modern age? In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind, head on over to stuff to blow That is the mothership. That's where you'll find them all. You will also find them all at any place that you acquire your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. We just ask that you subscribe and that you leave a nice review, leave us some stars and or a nice comment because this uh, helps us out in the long run. If you want to check out other shows that we're involved in, first of all, there's invention. We've mentioned that one uh, before on, on the show already. And, uh, this is a, a journey through human techno history. Find it at inventionpod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we've mentioned the second oil age. Uh, that is out as well if you want a, a short form of fiction, horror fiction exploration throughout the, your holidays. Oh, and I should also note, if you are interested in stuff to blow your mind, merchandise, uh, we still have the old t-shirt store. Oh, yeah. And uh, I am to understand that there is going to be a sale of some sort coming up. Uh, you know how it is. You get around and think there are all these sales. Uh, the same w- will be true of our T-shirt store. You can find some old favorites like our squ- uh, the, squ- the squirrels are not what they seem. Uh, the Skuggs shirt, uh, also of course the uh, uh, the Great Basilisk shirt was a big hit. The Sphere catastrophe is yeah. one of my favorites, as well as some standard logo stuff. And I believe there's going to be a new shirt in the store as well. So that's going to be worth checking out.
0: Definitely buy all the merch. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers. Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on today's episode, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. you.